Hey, I'm Lee from Dublin, Ireland. I'm Nick, Showtime Bellata from Rhode Island. I'm Blake from Oakland, California. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. How many times have you seen The Big Lebowski? If the answer is zero, well, you're just going to have to bear with us. But if it's three times, five times, ten times, you're in good company. Even Jeff Bridges, the dude himself, loves to watch it. You know, it'll come on the TV, and I say, I'm just going to watch it till uh, Turturro licks the ball, and then I'll, you know, click on, you know, and he'll lick that ball. And I'll say, oh, I'm just going to wait till so, and then I'm hooked, and it's like popcorn. I can't stop. You know, it's, it's one of my favorite movies. Oh, that's great. It's Bullseye. <laughs> This week, Jeff Bridges and Zen master Bernie Glassman talk about the dude in all of us. You know, we're all a bit dudeish. You know, we have uh, you know a thought. Wouldn't it be wonderful just to you know, let it all go and just take things as they come? We all need a release from the system that we're in. Perhaps the dude is offering that kind of release to people watching it. And H. John Benjamin talks about voicing the cartoon super spy Archer, his days recording Dr. Katz in a kitchen pantry, and why sometimes it's tough to show up for work. Well, I think it's a combination of laziness and, and um, sociopathology. But I, I, now I realize that through analysis. All this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by some of our favorite culture critics to recommend culture that's worth your time. This week, we're joined by two folks from the AV Club, Nathan Rabin, the head writer, and Mara Eakin, the music editor. Hey, guys, how's it going? Great. It's going absolutely fantastic. Thanks for asking. Nathan, I'm going to start with you and a documentary called The Imposter, which just came out on DVD. Um, It's a, a documentary about a French man who impersonated... A missing teenager, I should say a long missing teenager, to his family and convinced uh, some of them, apparently. It's a sort of Errol Morris-style mystery. Let's take a listen to a clip. Uh, We have a kid in uh, shelters, certainly is American, who is about 14, 15 years old. The problem is we don't know who he is. Let me just take a look here. I got maybe something, she said. We got a kid from San Antonio missing since June 13, 1994. His name is Nicholas Barclay. In my head, I was just a police officer with, with, with Nicholas Barclay next to me, trying to confirm his identity, and like any other policeman would do. So, Nathan, you compare this to the films of Errol Morris. Those are some of my favorite films. I'm intrigued. What's the deal? Well, this is a film that uh, traffics in an awful lot of moral ambiguity. Uh, It belongs to sort of the subsection of documentaries uh, about stories that are too fantastical, uh, too preposterous to believe are true, uh, yet somehow inexplicably happened. And every single component of this story uh, engenders this intense cognitive dissonance. Like, how could any family possibly have not noticed that this man who literally was a European in his mid-twenties, <laughs> who had different colored hair, who had different colored eyes, who had an 
accent, who had different coloring. Every 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 possible aspect of his being was almost 100% different from who their son was. So from the start, there is this element of doubt that just kind of becomes uh, greater and greater and greater. And over the course of the film, sort of your perspective and your sympathies, they shift uh, pretty radically. Mara, let's talk about your pick, which is an album by the Scottish band Frightened Rabbit called Pedestrian Verse. Uh, Here's a song from the album. Tell me what you like about this Frightened Rabbit record. Well, I like the Frightened Rabbit record a lot. The record's called Pedestrian Verse. It's the band's first on Atlantic. Um, I like their previous two records a lot. This new record, the band, instead of just one person being the songwriter, the frontman Scott Hutchinson, uh, they've kind of all come together, all four or five members, however many people are in the band now, and uh, done the songwriting, and it's it's worked out to good effect. The song that I like, Backyard Skulls, it's talking about like how there's these skulls buried in the backyard, there are people, they're not deep enough to be found, they're not deep enough to be buried forever, and it's pretty uh, dark stuff. Mara Eakin recommends Frightened Rabbit's album Pedestrian Verse. She's the music editor of the AV Club. The AV Club's head writer, Nathan Rabin, recommends the documentary film The Imposter. You can hear Mara, Nathan, and other AV Club contributors on their podcast, Reasonable Discussions. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. For a while, I was a ballot counter for the San Francisco Department of Elections. We worked in a warehouse underneath the Civic Center, and we had to be completely silent while we counted to 20 over and over. Apparently, 20 is the highest number you can count to without getting lost. I got promoted to ballot box carrier, which was a harder job, but the good news was you were allowed to talk. And my partner was a guy who was in his 30s, about 10 years older than I was then. One day, he told me, basically apropos of nothing, every Sunday, me and my wife get up around nine. We don't get out of bed. We just turn on the Big Lebowski. Every Sunday, I said. Every Sunday, he said. Like church, I said. It is church, he said. My guest Jeff Bridges' performance as the dude in The Big Lebowski is a touchstone for a generation, actually multiple generations, of people just trying to abide. He starred in many acclaimed films and won a Best Actor Oscar a few years ago, but The Dude is still his calling card. Bernie Glassman joins Bridges on the show. Glassman is a Zen Buddhist Roshi who's a leader in American Zen. He's worked primarily on applying his spiritual study to social action, creating businesses to give jobs to the indigent and founding the Zen Peacemakers. Their new book together is called The Dude and the Zen Master, and it's an exploration of the practice of being human. But before I talk to them, let's check in with The Dude. Here's a bit of The Big Lebowski's epilogue. The dude is at the bowling alley, and he orders a few beers and then spots the film's narrator, the stranger. Hey, man. How do you do, dude? 
I wonder if I'd see you again. I wouldn't miss the semis. How oh, things yeah? been going? Oh, you know, strikes and gutters, ups and downs. Sure, I've got you. Yeah. Thanks, Gary. Well, take care, man. Gotta get back. Sure. Take it easy, dude. Oh, yeah. I know that you will. Yeah, well, the dude abides. I don't know about you, but I take comfort in that. It's good knowing he's out there, the dude, taking her easy for all us sinners. Shush. I sure hope he makes the finals. Jeff Bridges, Bernie Glassman, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you guys on the show. Hey, Jess. Th- thanks for Thank having you. us. So, Jeff, I, I have to run this story by you, um, and you can, can you can basically just confirm or deny. Um, I I have a I have a friend who used to co-host this show with me back when I was in college, and um, his younger brother was uh, friends with uh, one of your kids, and. This is the story. Again, I don't know if this is true, but um, he told me one day that his younger brother came home from a party at your house, which you were the chaperone of. And he said that at one point um, you were standing at the top of a rotunda of some kind and everyone at the party, like a bunch of I think maybe they were 15 year olds or something like that, started chanting, do the dude, do the dude. And so you went back in your bedroom and uh, got a uh, like a dressing gown and came back out and uh, did the dude for everybody. What is the dude? <laughs> is that a dance? <laughs> like the Bartman? No, it sounds like something. I don't remember that, but it sounds like something I might do, but I don't remember it. Yeah, I, but I often I like that dance that my landlord, uh, the guy, the actor, uh, uh, Jack... Uh, Keller, uh, he he did a wonderful. Uh, he called it his cycle. It's one of my <laughs> favorite parts of Lebowski. So I, I get the impression from from reading the book, Jeff, that um, you've actually spent a not insignificant amount of time um, enjoying the Big Lebowski as um, as a film rather than just as you know an experience in your life, which isn't. I, I even found it to be especially typical among actors. Is is that actually true? That is very true. I, I like your friend. You know, you were saying in the beginning. I don't think I watched it probably as much as him, but I'll, I'll often you know it'll come on the TV, and I say I'm just going to watch it till uh, Totoro licks the ball, and then I'll you know <laughs> click on you know, and he'll lick that ball. And I say oh I'm just going to wait till so, and then I'm hooked. And it's like popcorn. I can't stop. You know, it's it's one of my favorite movies. Bernie, I get to be in it too. So. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie Glassman, you you didn't know uh, you didn't know Jeff Bridges when we uh, when he made this movie when this movie came out. Did you see it in theaters? Do you remember no. when you first saw it? I, I think I probably saw it around ninety eight. So not too long after it came out. What did you think of it when you first saw it? I loved it. You know, oh, first of all, I'm from New York. Um, uh, I'm. New York Jew uh, who'd been into Zen for a long time and so it had and who's uh, who likes to uh, clown around so it had all the right elements for me it, it, um, it was great I loved it 
It's funny that you say that um, you like it as a New York Jew. I think of it as being like the ultimate Los Angeles movie. And I say that as a person transplanted to Los Angeles. Uh Uh-huh. In that it has this sort of sense of vast, the sort of vast possibility and odd connection um, that you get from driving around a place that's enormous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I lived in L.A. 20 years. I, I know what you mean. And I guess the, the Jewish part is from a lot of the dialogue that Walter has. Shabbos! And, you know, it it's just rings as part of my upbringing, if you will. So that may have more to do with the Cohen brothers, although they're not, they would not say that, you know, but uh, I'm not sure. You know, it's funny, my, my dad, I, I think The Big Lebowski might be my dad's favorite film. And my dad is a veteran who worked in the vets movement for much of his life. And he has told me many times that Walter, the character played by John Goodman in the film, is his favorite vet in a movie uh-huh. ever. <laughs> because he just likes he just likes that he's so insane, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So a, a, a fan of Lebowski, you know, maybe a few years ago told me an interesting theory. You know, there are many many theories uh, uh that go around uh, with Lebowski and this guy's talking this is talking about how kind of insane uh, Walter is in the movie that uh, this guy's theory was that Donnie was a figment of Walter's imagination. He didn't really <laughs> exist. <laughs> I really, I really enjoyed that, uh, and the fact that the dude just kind of put up with it. You know. <laughs> Describe to me what you think it is that people respond to in the dude as a character, and and the way that he lives his life because you you take a lot of time sort of considering that in, in the book hmm yeah uh, it's uh, you know kind of kind of mysterious but I think um, you know what you know why you know uh, what uh, what makes people uh, dig the dude but I think that we all have a you know we're all a bit dudish you know we have you know a, kind of a uh, you know, I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful just to you know, let it all go and just take things as they come? And uh, my daughter Isabel, uh, she um, she said, uh, you know, the dude is like he's somebody who doesn't like to uh, do much. He's not a a, a person who uh, does things. He's dude. He's done. You know what I mean? He's dude. So I don't know. That, I don't know if that says anything. It's hard for it's hard for me to actually tell that and make and pe- have people make sense. I don't know how you would spell "dude" meaning "d o e d." Is that how is that how you would spell it? Do I don't know. You know, uh, a, a thought just came up to me. That I'd like to share. Yeah. Uh, I I do a bit of clowning, um, and the role of the jester, the role of the it, like. It was called the nar, the the jester in the courts and whatever. Is to is to reduce some of the tension in society. Now, all cultures, if you look at them, have some means of release. So let's say the Catholic world, the the release is carnival. 
Mm. And in the Jewish world, the release is Purim. In Japan, the release is alcohol. It's a very strict formal system, but at night you get drunk and anything's okay. So we all need a release from the system that we're in. And perhaps the dude is offering that kind of release to people watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, isn't it, that's what The Stranger says at the end, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it kind of, he feels good about that there's a guy around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like, I think that a lot of people think of this character, the dude, as being perfectly implacable, you know, being as as serene as the day is long. And, and as you guys talk a little bit about in the book, you know, a, a lot of what The Big Lebowski is about is the dude becoming agitated, <laughs> things bothering the dude because the dude has his life set up the way he wants. He is in this, you know, state of grace and it is interrupted repeatedly by outside forces. And in fact, sort of what the big Lebowski in my mind is about is this character learning to, you know, learning to sort of refine his balance rather than just have to have his ideal state all the time. Hmm. When I was cooking along with what you were saying, but then when you said learned, I don't think this is anything new for the dude. If my, this is my opinion. You know, I think that he's you know kind of like been like this uh, most of his life, except for his little uh, burst of action with the Seattle Seven. You know? <laughs> but other than that, I think he pretty pretty much uh, lets it rip. You know, however, you know, whatever's going on, uh, he, uh, you know, that's him. You know. Jeff, I think it's it's easy to say um, for any of us that we're like the dude because I think we all think of ourselves as being like the dude in our heads. How, how are you different from the dude? Oh, there's a lot in common, uh, but uh, how am I different? I think uh, I'm probably, although I, I find as I get older, I become kind of, uh, I was going to say less and less, but I don't know, I'm what I'm doing right now is is not very you know too much dude. I'm, you know, I, you know I'm, I I find I uh, I see a lot of uh, ambivalence in things. You know, it's tough for me to make uh, decisions. Um, uh, I think I'm, what I was going to say was that I'm more ambitious than the dude. You know, although I don't consider myself very ambitious, still I'm more ambitious than 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 him. More ambitious than you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Jeff Bridges and Bernie Glassman, the authors of a book called The Dude and the Zen Master. Bridges is an Oscar-winning actor who starred in the cult hit The Big Lebowski, among many other films. Bernie Glassman is a Zen teacher who helps Bridges harness his inner dudeness. How did the two of you guys meet? We met at a uh, a dinner that was being thrown for... Uh, Bernie and Ram Das in uh, Santa Barbara, and I was sitting next to Bern, and we started talking and and uh, got along well, and then we kind of kept up our friendship over the years. How many years is it now? What do you think? Fifteen, good, ten, fifteen, somewhere, Some, somewhere, somewhere like between yeah, 10, ten and fifteen. 15 yeah. yeah. Do you guys remember what you talked about when you first met? Yeah, I remember what I I one of the things, and <laughs> I did this with Bernie. I. Uh, 
I gave uh, Ram Das a little head. And I'm not, you know, we're not, we're not going into the sexual realm here. I, I make these little clay heads, and uh, and so I gave Ram Dass one, and that kind of like was an icebreaker, I guess. We started to, you know, talk and just hang out a bit. Can't remember much more than that, but that kind of sticks in my mind. How about you, Burn? I can't remember anything at all. <laughs> yeah, <it's>, uh, <laughs> just uh, in general, not just this meeting, just overall. <laughs> oh, overall, and in fact, many times I'll, uh, when I'm giving a talk as a Zen teacher, I'll start off by saying, you know, a lot of Zen people, a lot of old, a lot of these Zen masters have said that you got to live in the present. And I said, I finally figured out what that means. He says, I can't remember anything else. <laughs> I'm now, you know, 74, and uh, uh, it's a good thing I can remember the guy sitting across from me. They're, oh, yeah, that's, that's uh, Jeff Bridges. <laughs> Jeff, I want to ask you about your wife because your wife is a big part of this book. Um, can you tell me about how you met her? Yeah, I met her on a picture called Rancho Deluxe in Montana. And I was shooting a, a scene with uh, Sam Waterston, uh, Harry Dean Stanton, and Richard Bright in this wonderful old uh, hot spring um, like hotel. It was you know about a hundred years old. They used to perform brain surgery there. Anyway, we're in the hot tub, and we're now we're breaking for lunch. And I see this gorgeous girl with. Uh, two black eyes and a broken nose and I could not take my eyes off her it was just amazing and I you know do the old trick that the guys do with the you know holding the magazine up so you could get a peek at her from behind it she would bust me every time I finally worked up the courage to to ask her out and I said uh, would you uh, you know would you like to go out with me and she said no no thanks <laughs> I said really she says no no and I maybe asked her one more time she said no now, uh, what makes this uh, such a good story for me personally is now we cut maybe 15 years down the, li- down the line here, and now we're married and we've got three kids, and I'm opening my uh, mail, and I get this um, uh, letter from uh, the makeup man on that particular show, Rancho Deluxe, and he says in the letter, I was going through my files, and I came across these pictures of you asking a local girl out for a date. I thought you might be interested in having them, <laughs> having no idea that this is the woman I married. So I have a photograph that I carry with me all the time. It's my, my dearest uh, possession of the first words I ever uttered to my wife and uh, her denying me a date. And I, I just love that. How did you get her to go out with you? Well, she said... Uh, she says, no, it's a small town. Maybe I'll see you around. And her prophecy uh, proved true, and that's what happened. You know, I saw her in this small town in Livingston, and we danced, and uh, that was it. All over. You talk very eloquently, I think, in the book about what it's like to um, be a young man who is in love and thinking about marriage and the things about that that are really scary yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, Sue. I know you're you're probably listening. She loves uh, NPR, so she's probably listening to this. She hates this story, but I got to tell me. You asked the question, I got to respond. Hey, what what I say? And uh, Maya had this theory 
that the fear of marriage uh, is really the fear of death. Uh, if death is the uh, you know the way it all works out, kind of end of the story, you know, uh, marriage is a giant step in that direction. You know, you're saying this is the woman. You know, no more screwing around. You know, this is the thing. And oh, I like screwing around. I like doing all that stuff, man. And uh, gee, I gotta close that door. You know. And uh, so I struggle with that um, for many for many years. Even after we were married, you know, I finally, you know, it was, we got to that you know three year period where it's either you know do your business or get off the pot kind of thing. And uh, um, I, uh, you know, sued. You know, it was not a guilt trip or anything. She just very you know blatantly said, "I understand your indecision, uh, Jeff." You know. Um, but I'm going to go back up where you found me because um, uh, my biological clock is going off. I want to have a family and all that. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> like, I just had to uh, get down on my knee and do the thing, you know, because I figured if I don't, I'm going to be thinking, you know, looking back as an old guy saying, that was the one. How could I have possibly let it go? So I'm, I'm you know, we're, uh, I, I just, you know, love her so much and her, uh, Oh, I, you know, I could go on and on, you know. As soon as you described that fear of death element of it, I, I recognized it immediately in, you know, how, how I felt before I, I married my wife. But, um, you know, part of part of that fear is, I think, also about the fact that you have to be grown up enough to be responsible for someone else's life in addition to your own. That can be a real scary thing to face. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing, and uh, that relationship of, of marriage brings you about as close as you can get, or as close as I can get. You know, speaking personally to uh, the other, everything that's not you. You know, I mean, that's like a real connection there with your wife, and you. And we, every once in a while, will have an ancient, our we call it our ancient battle that kind of rises. It's the same thing that that uh, causes us to. Uh, you know, get into it from time to time, and it's kind of love bubbles up in that somehow, you know, and uh, and that fe- and that feels good and soothes the the wounds of the battle, you know. Bernie, you talk a little bit in the book about uh, your late wife, who uh, who worked with you. Um, maybe you could describe. Um, what came up for you when when you heard Jeff talking about his relationship with his wife? Yeah, we. Uh, I often talk of marriage as tying the two inner legs of the two people together, and so what you wind up with is one free leg for each person, which and that means that. That uh, that person using the free leg is going in the direction they're going, and that isn't necessarily understood by the other person. And then you've got the two legs that are tied together, so there's the motion that's happening of the two of you being bound together. So instead of two people, there's really three lives happening, and you and and for it to work. You've got to really understand all three lives. It's not just the two. It's the third. It's what is this thing that's now the union of the two of us. It's a different thing. It's it's not Bernie or Eve. It's a, 
It's a new thing, man, I, I, to learn about. I, I love the idea of marriage, which is something I fought so hard against. But I really love that idea and the way you were describing it. Uh, you know, in, in working with people, that's how I approach my work is sort of a marriage. I, sometimes I wish uh, our country, you know, our, the Democrats and the Republicans could look at themselves and say, hey, we're married, guys. Come on. You know, we want to spend our whole marriage. You know, I've got some friends that, you know, are just bitch about their marriage. They're, they're, they're determined to stay married for the kids or whatever. But they'll just, uh, you know, bitch, 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 you know. And uh, I say, God, you know, this this is the game. that you're in. This is the game in town. Man, you know, play yeah. the game. Come on now, don't just you know bitch about uh, the shape of the ball and the you know the sidelines and all that. Get to you know get together, man. Yeah. <laughs> After a break, more with Jeff Bridges and Bernie Glassman. Plus, Mike Wiebe from the Riverboat Gamblers reveals the song that changed his life. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye is supported in part by MailChimp. With email newsletters and social media integration, MailChimp is like your own personal publishing platform. Tom Hardy, sorry I didn't recognize you. Love, bookstore Colleen. Online at MailChimp.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are the Oscar-winning actor Jeff Bridges and the Zen master Bernie Glassman. We're talking about an unlikely Buddhist icon— the Dude, as portrayed by Bridges in the movie The Big Lebowski. I want to play one more clip from The Big Lebowski. Um, in this scene, the, the dude, played by uh, one of my guests, Jeff Bridges, uh, goes in to meet with the titular Big Lebowski about uh, the sort of instigating event of the film, which is a, a case of, of mistaken identity. And um, basically, the the Big Lebowski has been targeted for some awful acts that we cannot talk about on the radio. Uh, but uh, Mr. Lebowski, the billionaire businessman, has no time or patience for this meeting with the dude. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Well, wait, wait, let me let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know, uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? <laughs> you don't go out looking for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a... what day is this? Well, I do work, sir. So if you don't mind... No, I do mind. Uh, the dude minds. This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. I mean, your wife owes my money. My wife not the issue here. I hope that someday my wife will learn to live on her allowance, which is ample. But if she does not, that is her problem, not mine. Just as the rug is your problem. Just as every bum's lot in life is his own responsibility, regardless of who he chooses to blame. I didn't blame anyone for the loss of my legs. I cannot solve your problem, sir. Only you can. Oh, f*** it. Oh, f*** it. Yes, that's your answer. That's your answer to everything. Tattoo it on your forehead. Your revolution is over, Mr. Lebowski. Condolences. The bomb's lost. My advice to you is to do what your parents did. Get a job, sir. The bombs will always lose. Do you hear me, Lebowski? The... 
that is this illustration of this huge generational conflict, I think. Um, and Bernie, I, I thought in, in my mind, it was sort of resonant with what you've done in your career, which is to say that um, you have taken something uh, in the practice of Zen Buddhism that I think most people, who, especially people who aren't overly familiar with it, would think of as being uh, a, a matter of removing yourself from the world um, and practicing on yourself um, and taking it into the world in the form of social action. And, and I wonder if that conflict that's that's in the movie is resonant for you for that reason, in, in the way that both the dude and and you have sort of navigated that um, th- those waters. Well, what's interesting to me is that I had conflicts or people like Mr. Lebowski telling me what the right thing to do is from sort of both sides of the channel. And this has got to do with the the, the basic uh, deal in, in Zen and, the ba- and uh, I think one of the basic deals in the book that er- from my standpoint, everything is just your opinion, man. So when I first started to practice Zen, for example, there were many people telling me, you know, you're escaping the world, man. You, you can't be doing that. Uh, now, I had a parallel life. I was an engineer. I worked in the space industry. And I was also uh, helping my teacher run a, a Zen center, which became very big. And then at some point, finally, I just did that full time. But so there were people on one hand telling me that the correct thing to do is not to get involved in something where you're meditating and you're trying to explore what, what's the meaning of life and all. You, you should just be uh, doing what they thought was the right thing. And the basic fact was that we as humans tend to stick, have certain opinions that we think is the right way the right opinion, the right way to do things, and then want everybody to do it that way instead of seeing that there's all these different beautiful flowers in the garden, man, and even the weeds have their own beautiful All these stuff. opinions, man. Yeah, it's all these opinions, and you can play with them and, and do interviews with them and whatever. Or you can now say, hey, man, you're doing the wrong thing, and if you don't stop, I'm going to kill you, and that that goes on and on, and we do kill each other. I, I, you know, since you brought up the uh, uh, marriage, Jess, you know that that's just kind of ringing in my head, and uh, you know this idea of kind of marrying life. You know, uh, say I'm, I'm one with this. You know, um, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be a bachelor. You know, I'm not gonna just look out. You know, for myself, but it's a, you know, it's a chance to um, to see yourself as something bigger than. Uh, what you what you might just see in the mirror. Well, guys, I, we're we're plumb out of time, but I sure appreciate you coming in to talk to me. Oh, good talking, Jeff. Yeah, it was fun. Jeff Bridges and Bernie Glassman have a book together. It's called "The Dude and the Zen Master." It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
Mike Wiebe is the lead singer of the Riverboat Gamblers. The Texas-based punk band has been active since 1997. Over the course of more than 15 years, the Gamblers have refined their style of melodic punk rock. 2012 saw the release of their sixth album, The Wolf You Feed. When Mike Wiebe was in college, but not even really, just kind of hanging out and about, his friend and future bandmate brought home an album by the Dictators called Blood Brothers. One of the first things Mike noticed was the cover. It's the silhouettes of these guys standing on a basketball court in New York City, and, and the lead singer has just this huge white guy afro. It was just such an awesome dichotomy of, of silly and tough at the same time. And the first song on that record, called Faster Louder, changed his life. And that song starts off on this real kind of gallop. One, two, three, four. And that's actually Bruce Springsteen, who was like in the next in the studio next door, and they were kind of like, hey, we come in and do the one, two, three, four. You immediately start pumping your fist. sense of humor on the whole record. Dictator song is just the sweet spot because punk rock was really serious and the dictators were like the exact opposite. I can talk faster, louder. I like, I love the little, the little chorus backup vocals. I don't know, it's like something that we do in the fifties. These kind of little backup shouts. such a confident and cocky song in such an awesome way. I think part of it is just accepting that I'm going to look like an idiot and that's awesome. And you get the you get the feeling like you could just really ham it up. Uh, maybe go just go say the most ridiculous thing to a girl somewhere with the, the worst line you could ever use. And you know what? It would probably work. It's that powerful. It's that powerful. our starting off point uh, for the band 
everything is so heavy in life. And I feel like if you can lose all that for half an hour or 45 minutes at a show, then that's, that's the really important thing. Mike Wiebe, vocalist for the Riverboat Gamblers on the song that changed his life, Louder and Faster by The Dictators. The Riverboat Gamblers' most recent album is The Wolf You Feed. After a break, H. John Benjamin talks about voicing the super spy, Archer, recording Dr. Katz in a kitchen pantry, and why sometimes it's frankly tough to show up for work. Well, I think it's a combination of laziness and sociopathology, but I, I, now I realize that through analysis. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Hey, Bay Area, it's your favorite native son, Jesse Thorne. Okay, second favorite after Joe DiMaggio. Wait, no. Third favorite after Joe DiMaggio and former Giants right fielder Willie McGee. Top 500. You don't like me very much. However, we're putting on a live bullseye show this weekend, Saturday, January 26th at the Punchline. It's part of San Francisco's Sketch Fest. We've got a wonderful lineup of guests. Roman Mars from 99% Invisible, the podcast about design. Totally amazing podcast about design. Uh, Boots from The Coup. Uh, we've got Steve Agee from the Sarah Silverman program doing stand-up comedy along with Aaron Foley. It is going to be a blast and a delight. You can visit punchlinecomedyclub.com to buy tickets or just find the link in the events section in the right-hand column of MaximumFun.org. Bullseye Live, Saturday, January 26th, 4 p.m. at the Punchline Comedy Club in San Francisco. Oh, and hey, guess what? I wrote a beautiful essay about I Got Five on it, Bay Area Ballas remix by the Loonies. Yeah, it's true. I really did. You'll hear it, but only if you come. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Animation legend Mel Blanc was the man of a thousand voices. My guest, H. John Benjamin, is pretty much the man of one voice. But that hasn't stopped him from being a force in the animated comedy world. He made his name as the shiftless son Ben on Dr. Katz Professional Therapist. These days, he's the star of two of the funniest shows on TV. On Fox's Bob's Burgers, he plays Bob Belcher, the slightly pathetic, slightly misanthropic father of three. Here he is on that show talking to his kids from a crawl space he just discovered in his home slash burger joint. Whose room am I behind? Mine. Hi, Tina. Are you in the wall or in my horse poster? Please say horse poster. I'm a horse. <laughs> oh, wait, I can go sideways, too. Are you in another dimension? Do you see a lion or a witch or a wardrobe? A what? A lion, a witch, or a wardrobe. Why are you saying that, Gene? It's a book. Oh, right, right. A kid's book, yeah. Yeah, by Salman Rushdie. <laughs> it's not by Salman Rushdie. Of course it is. It isn't. Yes, it is. I, I'm not going to talk to you anymore, Gene. I'm in a wall. Go look it up, though. I just did. It's Salman Rushdie. <laughs> Benjamin also stars as Sterling Archer on the FX comedy Archer. Archer is a sort of comic extension of James Bond. He's a brilliant super spy who, in every non-super spy related area of life, is basically a horrible, selfish person. In this scene, he's gotten himself stranded in a tropical pirate jail, and his super spy colleagues have found themselves jailed with him after a failed rescue attempt. I just traveled 8,000 miles and got ambushed by Malaysian pirates trying to rescue a person who is now responsible for my getting crabs twice. Oh, come on. 
These crabs, this time, were not my fault. This whole dungeon is, um... Were you gonna say lousy with them? I was. But then I realized that's, uh... Where that phrase comes from, yeah. 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 Yeah, so guess what I'm in? Um, no mood? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Wait, shouldn't it be some kind of crab dish? Because of the crabs? Like, um, crab cakes? Ooh, or, uh, Lana. 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 Lana! What? Dungeon us crab. <laughs> because we're in a dungeon? I'm kidding. Crab Rangoon. <laughs> John Benjamin, <laughs> welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. It's nice to laugh at me. <laughs> um, I uh, So petulant, that character. All of those characters, so petulant. Yeah. It seems so from those two clips. Were yeah. you? Um, did you aspire to be a performer as a as like a kid and teenager? Like, did you do musical theater or anything? Uh, no, I didn't do any theater, uh, and definitely not musical. I, my mother was uh, a a ballet dancer, so there might have been some performance uh, uh, blood in me, but I, I didn't do any anything performance related. Except for my bar mitzvah, uh, you know, till I was in my mid twenties. Was your mother a professional ballet dancer? I yeah, I guess, or she lied. <laughs> Wait, so she was a retired ballet dancer. Well, at the and time, ballet she, kicks your kicks your butt physically, right? Um, I, it depends on what ballet you're doing, but I, um, uh, if you're doing the butt kicking dance, yes. Up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she, uh, she danced when I was a kid, she was, she danced in, uh, professional troops in Massachusetts. So, um, and I would, I would watch those performances. So they did exist. And, uh, and then she went on to teach, I think when her butt got kicked too much. What did you think of that as a kid? I, I really like, I, I think I liked it. I think at first it was, uh, it was grueling to, you know, sit and watch, uh, people move like that. But um, they were like a raucous group. I remember, like the it, my and my dad was a pretty staid guy. He was a businessman, and so there would be a lot of you know dancers over the house, uh, you know, kind of frolicking, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and my dad in the corner, sort of uh, sipping scotch. <laughs> I, I went to a performing arts high school, and the thing that I remember most about the dancers. Um, besides their lithe, sinuous bodies, was that they would just sort of stand apart from everyone else, complaining about things and smoking, just like smoking <laughs> like a chimney. Just yeah. they all smoked copiously. I guess everyone probably did then, right? There was no smoking in my house. I didn't I... go to high school in like 1955. <laughs> That's we're true. talking about 1997 here. Oh, I didn't know how old you were. You yeah. look, yeah. You look good, look like like you're in your late sixties. <laughs> I look like a real American graffiti type. It's, it's the tie. Sure, it throws you off. Yeah, you, you can't tell how old you are. But I, I do remember dancers being like a really specific cultural group. Yeah, well, they, yeah, they they were kind of uh, definitely like outsiders, but they were very communal, as I remember. And like you know, she worked with the same people. For a long time, I think, and I, you know, I sort of remember a few of them. But they were they were so great to me. I remember how nice they were and how, um, 
Yeah, they would make me dance. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing that this suggests. Like, did were you ever? I don't. I'm not sure there is a causal connection, but they. Yeah, they were. There was a lot. If at, um, you know, I would go to their rehearsals and I would watch them, and then I, occasionally they would come over. I think as my father allowed, or you know, uh, or much to his chagrin, but they would come over and and party. I guess. Yeah. So I was always involved in that a little bit. And I must have been very young at that point, like 8, 9, 10. Did you ever take dance classes from your mom or someone that your mom knew? Or? I would disrupt them mo- mostly <laughs> because she did teach in our basement. Uh, she like they, My father built a studio for her in the, in the basement. So there was, she, she, held, she held classes there and I would go down. And I think I took a few movement classes. She did a lot of creative movement stuff, which was... It could be fun, you know, like you act like a tree for an hour. Sure. But you dance. Yeah. And what's what's interesting to me about that is that when I think of uh, comic personae, I can think of few that are less movement dependent than yours. (laughs) It's true. I end up like doing this. Yeah, you are you are a talker, and not just in your voiceover career, but in your almost all of your stage comedy that I've ever seen. It's just you standing there talking with someone else standing there talking on stage. (laughs) I'm dancing on the inside. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot going on. In yeah. I, I read somewhere that one of your hobbies was recording interviews with people as a teenager. <laughs> I did do that for a little bit. I think I did. I know I, I, I had a cassette recorder, and I, I think they were more like project. I wasn't like doing it to everybody. I wasn't one of those kids. But pro- that's not a type of kid. Just so you know, <laughs> I might have been right. There was always a kid with a cassette recorder all the time. <laughs> sure. Sure, the kids who like Dungeons and Dragons in the CIA in the training program. Yeah, okay. um, but uh, I would I would do sort of project based uh, recording. I would go interview. I do. I didn't. I know. I did. Uh, I interviewed my mother's obstetrician. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's not like, true. It is true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I'm. I think I was a teenager at that point. <laughs> Uh, like I, I just I think to make fun of my mother somehow, or like I don't know if it. Yeah, but, so this was a comedy project to interview your mother's Austin Trish. Yeah, it might have been for like her birthday or something. Where I put together a recording of, uh, and then I would do like fake. Uh, uh, you know, I would do the cute like, uh, like a Phil Hendry's kind of thing, like where I would I would do the the interview and the interview, the interviewer and the interviewee. Do you remember any of the premises of those? I don't remember. Yeah, it always had to do something with my family, like or like you know the story of Howard Benjamin, my father, or something. You know, where I would interview fake people. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor and comedian H. John Benjamin. He's voiced characters on Doctor Katz, Professional Therapist, Family Guy, Archer, and Bob's Burgers. Archer just returned for a fourth season on FX. One of Benjamin's first comedy gigs was in Boston. He was a performer with Cross Comedy, a sort of sketch and variety comedy show led by David Cross. Um, I I had Jonathan Katz on the show uh, a little while ago, and he told me about him and Tom Snyder, I think, seeing you in Cross Comedy. Right. Jonathan had, did some stuff uh, in that as well. I think that's how I met him. Yeah. Um, and they were just they were just starting this idea of doing um, 
Dr. Katz, which was a very unusual show in that it was, well, for one thing, it was produced by an educational software company, but also it was um, uh, it, it was essentially audio driven. Yeah, that it was it was in in many ways like an animated audio recording. Yeah, I I don't think I met the animators for a few years. Like they were in another side of this. Uh, well, it started like a house, um, so there was no trace of animators or, or anything. Literally sitting in a kitchen or something like that, right? It was a pantry, uh, you know, cupboards, a cupboard in the kitchen. I would tell the story back then too. Like the first, there was no presence of any television people. I mean, I saw the finished product, but I never. I guess I did see it on TV eventually. But I always thought this was like a elaborate practical joke. <laughs> and there was a mic hanging, you know, in front of cans of beans, and they were like, "Talk about stuff." <laughs> Let's take a listen to a scene from Doctor Kath, professional therapist. In this scene, my guest. John Benjamin uh, is talking to his father, Dr. Katz, played by Jonathan Katz. And um, he's trying to convince him that maybe he's been drinking too much. Yeah, you're doing all right, Dad. How about uh, a glass of water or a cup of coffee and, uh, and then you can call it quits for the day, huh? And uh, start drinking early tomorrow. You know, why don't you just put a... Uh... And, you know, I've noticed lately that you've, you've been drinking more than, than usual. I'm, you know, is there, I'm no, wondering I if think... that's a problem. Or, or... I, I think the problem is you've been noticing it more. I've been drinking the same and you... And you're just looking for some flaw. You're all bloated, Dad. You're all... I feel a little puffy. You can hear me laugh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well there mean, was a lot of that in that show. Cause both of you like... are laughing at each other in much of the televised scenes in that show. Yes. Well, it was like, you know, you're in a small space with somebody for an hour and a half, and it starts, yeah, and there's no script. Jonathan Katz is... Um, one of the most unusual men I've ever spoken to. Yeah, it's true. It's difficult. He's just... It's like a Rubik's Cube. Uh, of. Yeah. I, had, I had this experience of talking to him a couple years ago about podcasting when he was first starting his podcast. Just on the phone. I was at an airport. I don't remember where I was going. And I realized that he had called me to ask me about RSS feeds or whatever, <laughs> something about pod, something technical about podcasting. Yeah, he was, he was always into he was into tech gear, and but he would not allow a sentence to pass without making a joke. It's true, and even when he didn't make a joke, it would be assumed to be a joke right. somehow. <laughs> like every <laughs> every sentence is told as a joke. Yes, and I think it's, I think it's funny. I, I always found myself. <laughs> There was only one way to find out, and that's to go back. So I guess it was a good thing he always taped himself. Uh, but there were a lot of just confu confused laughs. I think people do have a hard time with him fi fi figuring out whether that was serious or not. Yeah, like what, what he just said. Well, he says everything in exactly the same tone, and many of the things he says are jokes in... I mean, they could be jokes that Henny Youngman told. Yes, there's some very obvious ones that are jokes. But not, then... he's not. But I mean, he tells everything is in exactly the same tone. So he yes. will tell you what he ate for lunch in the same tone right. as and he will would... tell you the jokiest joke <laughs> yes. of any joke. And ever. you laugh equally as much. <laughs> yes. <at> the... 
is the way that he says egg salad sandwich or something. Yeah. So how do you – I mean, Dr. Katz ran for quite a while on Comedy Central, was a significant success, although, um, you know, never a, a huge broad success. Um, how did you go from being a guy who was on a television show that you weren't even quite sure was a television show because it was recorded in, you know, somebody's house mm-hmm. in Watertown, Massachusetts, yeah. to actual professional comedy career? Well, I, I didn't really. I stayed there for a while. And the success of Dr. Katz led that company to make some more shows. Um, and... I did. I had moved. I moved to New York and started doing comedy in New York. Um, and as Dr. Katz got on, I would go back uh, initially by bus, then eventually by plane, uh, <laughs> which was very exciting. Um, and the and but so that company uh, did three, four uh, shows that followed Dr. Katz. Some simultaneous is where home movies started, uh, where Lauren sort of was – Tom Snyder passed the reins to Lauren and gave him his own show. He started doing that. That became – that was on for five or six years. And so I, I kept going back uh, and there was always work there. Um, and finally, I, I gave up on that and moved to – you know, stayed in New York. Did you ever think like, oh, I'm I'm on television – uh, that makes me a certain kind of famous. I should take advantage of my fame by having an act that I can take to colleges and get paid ten thousand dollars. Yeah, do a no, show. I never did that. I, I I didn't do that, which was now that you say it is unfortunate. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's always cash poor. Uh, still am a little bit. Um, I you know I went when I moved to New York. I I started. I, I think there was. A, I know there was one time that's at least a little on point to this that I I started doing maybe, I guess, voiceover commercial work was the natural thing to make money on. I did that a little bit, although I really disliked it. And I remember uh, reading for the first time, like reading a, I think it was a beer ad or something, and it was like a a father and son, and it was looking for a Ben Katz type. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, I showed up to that audition. I'm the guy who's on the sheet, you know, <laughs> and I didn't get it. <laughs> and I did not get it. Yeah. So I, I couldn't even get the part that was based on my voice. You know, so that's how bad I was at that. Um, and, but, you know, then I, I kept doing comedy there and I, there were opportunities to go to L.A. at that point, you know, and start doing like sitcom work. So I had some opportunities there, but I don't know. I always I, I, I always resisted that. Um, and now I regret it based on how much money I have. <laughs> uh, but at the time, I was just like I, 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 I loved working twice a month. Well, see, that's the thing. I I I read a, a lot of interviews with you and, and thought back to the the time you were on the show years and years ago, um, and the the like leitmotif in all of these interviews is you pointing out your own laziness. Yeah, <laughs> like emphasizing that you don't like to work very hard. Well, I think it's a combination <laughs> of laziness and and um, 
sociopathology. But I, I, <laughs> now I realize that through analysis. Um, initially, it was laziness. Now I've really pinpointed that I just can't do it. <laughs> I physically can't show up at work or I break down I wanna, on a cellular level. I cannot. I want to talk a little bit about Archer uh, because Archer is a show. I just love Archer so much. Um, let's let's play a scene from the show. Your character Archer, as I mentioned in the introduction, is a super spy who, like James Bond or other famous super spies, is also a terrible person. But um, Archer actually sort of explores the consequences of the fact that a super spy is also a terrible person. Um, <laughs> Uh, this is uh, in this scene. Archer has uh, from the new season, season four. Archer's gotten stranded at a Canadian casino, um, and he calls back home to his super spy headquarters uh, to try and get a loan so that he can come back. Okay, let me talk to Lana. Tabernacle, you know there is a line. There's going to be a line at your wake, so shut your poutine hole and let me. Nope. Lana, Lana, listen, nope. I. Need you to stop saying noop. Noop, Archer, noop. And it's going to sound like I'm hanging up, but... Why do you cassé le téléphone? Because I am out of people to call. Even Woodhouse wouldn't help me. What do you mean, no? I basically own you. And I basically own him. (laughs) He's... I mean, I, I imagine it must be kind of fun to just get to go just... To the top of your selfishness. <laughs> yeah. It, there, it's, there, it's a really fun show to do, although I'm – unlike uh, the other shows, I'm, I'm, I'm alone during that show. So it's really it's, – it's unfortunate. Like I want to see somebody uh, – I want to yell at someone's face uh, and see them demoralized. You do the show like in a recording studio with, with what, Adam Reed, one of the show's creators or somebody in, in, the, in a studio in Atlanta? Yes, they'll be on the phone. I'll be, you know, they'll, they'll be through a digital line, and I'll record alone in a booth like this. Yeah. Um, what I love about the character Archer is that um, he is—he never has any moments hesitation about being self-indulgent or childish. No, it's like a relentless. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is great, yeah. And he's like seems to always end up rewarded for it somehow. <laughs> well, I mean, he's also a brilliant super spy, and there's a sort yeah, of... that is true. He's competent at what he does, extremely competent at what he does. Uh, so I guess that yeah, it always uh, it works out in his favor. There's right. this there's this part of us that is so as viewers, I think that is so trained to celebrate sort of hyper-competence in an action movie-type context. Yeah. That a character that has that hyper-competence can almost literally do anything as as long as they're not, um, like, evil. Right. <laughs> and also they demonstrate... Evil. yeah. But, <laughs> but it's so funny, it. like, his his effects are evil, but he's rarely... It's unusual for him to be malicious, He's more like petulant and yes. stupid yeah, and arrogant. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's a really fun character to play, obviously. That's, I try to be a little bit like that in my real life. 
sometimes. I just can't shoot people. <laughs> and I want. I, I want to ask you about that. You'd because... like to? I think. Yeah, it's true. You're tapping into something you'd love to do to everyone around you. I think, uh, and have the ability to not uh, face consequences for that. <laughs> Let's take a listen to another scene with my guest H. John Benjamin uh, from the new season of Archer. In this scene, your character Sterling Archer is stranded on the side of the road with his stepdad. Um, and a suitcase full of cash. And uh, they get into an argument about something that is basically completely unrelated to either of those things. Why are you driving around with a suitcase full of dirty money? It's kind of a long story. Well, we've got all day. Nobody's going to pick us up. We look like the ballad of the flim flam man. The what? Guy Owen? Jesus, Ron, read a book. Maybe between biannual suitcase robberies? I don't know who keeps tipping them off. And anyway, you mean semi-annual. They're the same thing. No, biannual means every two years. That's biennial. <laughs> Bi or semi-annual means every six months. Oh, uh, then yeah, biannually or semi. Speaking of... <laughs> you really got rebuked for that. <laughs> the um, the two things that I like uh, that are in evidence in this scene um, about Archer are one, Archer will um, as a show will go to any cultural reference point for a joke. Yes, yeah, to yeah to the point of not paying attention to. Uh, the audience not understanding that reference. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I worry that I know a little bit about too many things. You know what I mean? <laughs> you like, don't know enough to, yeah, but not to enough cover to, Archer. But I mean, but yeah, I can't, I miss many things on Archer. Yeah. Adam is a real, I, 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 see, I'm, I'm pretty sure he came out of uh, uh, English lit. Uh, he's very well read, um, very intelligent guy and really does push that in the show, which is great. Well, John Benjamin, it's it's really been great to talk to you. Thank you for joining me on Bullseye. Thanks for having me. H. John Benjamin has voiced a truckload of animated characters for various television programs. Right now, you can hear him on Archer, which airs Thursday nights on FX, and on Bob's Burgers, Sunday nights on Fox. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Huel Hauser died. If you're a Californian, you know what that means. You know who Huel is. We all do. If you aren't from California, though, you probably don't. So let me tell you. Huel hosted a public TV show called California's Gold. This is what would happen. He would pull up to a restaurant or a geyser or a petting zoo or the state capitol He'd have a microphone in his hand, he'd be wearing a Hawaiian shirt, and he'd have a cameraman with one camera. And then he would marvel. Mono Lake, the name, the, the Yokut word mono is, means, is translated as the people of the flies. Wow. Yeah. Look at these flies. They're everywhere. Look how they move. Look at this. Ha! The wind is pushing the flies I've never seen anything like this. Oh, look. There were almost no edits in this show. Just basically one shot of Huel going from person to person with his mic, wherever he was, pointing his cameraman to shoot something he thought was worth shooting. 
Sometimes the subject matter was something really important. Sometimes it was just a goat. But Hulhauser drew you in. Here we go, over to get a view of the city. Whoa! Now wait a minute. This is a view. What a view of the bridge. Look at this. The first time you saw Huell, you thought maybe he was a fool. But if you let him bring you along, you started to see it. You started to see that he wasn't a fool. He was a genius. You started to see what Huell saw. Like a lot of Californians, Huell wasn't born here. I think like most transplants, he came here looking for something. The difference, I guess, is that he never stopped looking. He was sort of on a quest. Most searchers keep searching because they haven't found what they want. I think Huell kept searching because he found what he wanted everywhere. His warmth and open-eyed amazement was infectious. It turned up the color saturation on everything around him. Suddenly, an old family chili recipe or an adobe brick or an ancient pine tree was the most wonderful thing in the world because Huell was there with it, and he truly appreciated it. He got it. He saw right away what made it wonderful. Then we could just ride in his wake. This is like a a bed of leaves here, a cushion of leaves here. Your dog is eating an avocado. Yeah, that that dog eats avocados. All our dogs eat avocados. If you're an avocado farmer, your dog likes them too. I've never seen a dog eat avocados before. Uh, I mean, that shell is. That shell's. You don't get much cleaner than that. You don't get that clean in your kitchen. (laughs) Look at this. That dog ate every speck of that avocado. I think we loved Huell Hauser because he helped us see the world right outside our doors like it was the first time. The most normal, mundane thing became a fascinating new toy to unlock and unfold. That's a special thing. You get older, you lose that. You know more, you've seen more, but you lose that rush of newness and wonder and awe. Huell never lost it. He was a shaman of newness and wonder and awe. Huell's gone now, but I say we ride in his wake a little longer. Look at that. Look at that. (laughs) That is unbelievable. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith, our senior producer, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our interstitial music provided by Dan Wallen. Thanks this week to Manoli Weatherill at NPR New York for engineering help with our Jeff Bridges interview. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud, where you can share your favorite segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.